Strategy Group podcast series. FSG is the leading information services and advisory partner for emerging markets executives. We partner with business leaders at more than 230 multinationals by providing them with advisory support, informational assets, and consulting services to power their emerging market growth strategies. My name is Martina Bozajeva, and I'm the head of research for our Europe, Middle East, and Africa research practice here at our London office, and I'll be moderating today's podcast. Today, I will be speaking with Mark McNamee, our senior analyst covering Russia, Ukraine, and CIS markets, who has actually just returned from a research trip to Ukraine, where he met with a number of our clients, as well as uh, leading economists and journalists in the country, to better understand the political and economic outlook for the country. Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Great. Thank you, Martina. Look forward to the discussion. Um, so compared to a few years ago, Ukraine just seems to have disappeared a bit from the headlines. Um, what does that actually tell us? Can you give us a brief sense of what's happened in the country since then? And is this a good sign or is it just the media attention has moved on? Right. Uh, well, a combination of, of both, I, I, I would say. It, it's a good sign insofar as uh, sort of, you know, the violence, the war, the revolution. Those days are, are uh, generally behind us. We'll talk about the war uh, later on in the podcast, of course. Um, and then, of course, you know, shifting political interests. So, you know, Russia and the U.S. and issues in, in Western Europe over the last six months to a year. So, um, you know, of course, media attention shifts pretty easily these days. But um, generally speaking, it, it is because things have sort of normalized a bit in the country. There's a little bit more stability, which, of course, is helping uh, our clients on the ground there and helping helping businesses. Um, to, to sort of update, uh, you know, since, you know, those those days of 2013, 2014, when Ukraine was the headline every day for for months with the revolution and then Russia's uh, uh, taking of Crimea, uh, the war in the Donbass, of course. Um, Things have, of course, sort of calmed down uh, a bit since then. Um, The the Donbass war still continues, of course. Crimea uh, remains uh, sort of at at least uh, tacitly in in Russia's control, uh, though not recognized by the international community. Um, And the Maidan revolution... Uh, obviously pushed out of power, former President Yanukovych. There's a new government in place, uh, and reforms are, generally speaking, relatively slow. So the people are more or less uh, rather disappointed, but there is clear progress in in various areas. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the political story. On uh, on the economic side of things, of course, Ukraine suffered from a pretty severe recession in both 2015 and 2016, falling by uh, 10% and uh, about 7%. Uh, respectively, in each in in 2014 and 2015, sorry, uh, a bit of a recovery in 2016, and now a bit more of a recovery in 2017, with slightly more growth expected again in, in 2018. Um, but of course, a lot of political issues remain. Uh, you still have a fragile political coalition. You you have rising popularity of populists, since the people still are under some some economic pressure, mm-hmm. uh, though a little bit of relief, but still under some pressure um, uh, over the last several years. Uh, and then, of course, IMF funding and the austerity that that's uh, come with over the last couple of years. So um, still somewhat of a tenuous situation, uh, fragile growth, cautious optimism is sort of the the, the, the catchphrase, I would say, for mm-hmm. the economy today. So a, a lot of our clients stay committed to the market with the expectation that it still has very significant potential. And it was actually performing below potential even before the 
the war and everything else that happened. And, and therefore, the expectation is also that after the severe recession that the country went through, the bounce back should be fairly fast um, and that there's a lot of growth runway still that businesses can take advantage of. But the bounce back seems to be pretty disappointing compared to where the country could be theoretically. What do you think are the main reasons for that underperformance in the recovery side? Mm-hmm. Right. So there's uh, there, there's a lot there. Uh, one is uh, there is still sort of, generally speaking, recovering but weak sentiment uh, amongst the population and, and amongst businesses. Um, we'll talk about the, the war and the Donbass later, but that's one of the one of the key themes I learned on being on the ground in Kiev. Is yes, the war has sort of fallen out of the headlines in the Western press, um, but everyone in, in Kiev or in, in Lviv, they know someone who's fighting on the front line still, or is, has suffered wounds from fighting, or, or in, in worst case scenarios has died. Uh, family members who have fled the region are now living in Kiev or Lviv or other parts of the country. So the war is still sort of constantly you know on the back burner in, in people's minds and in their consciousness and that naturally sort of leads to still conservative decision making by you know the, the average consumer in the country or, or or a business who's that's seeking to reinvest uh, so that that's one aspect of it uh, also the currency depreciated massively so you're still seeing and you're still seeing inflation slow and moderate but that's after 60 percent inflation in 2015 uh, and very high inflation even last year. So the accumulated effect still continues to weigh on uh, on, on wages and, and purchasing power and, and confidence in the economy. So there still are sort of these lingering impacts to, uh, from the war, the revolution uh, that continue for years. And that's why we still see sort of a lack of an acceleration of growth in, into 2017 here and, 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 and likely into 2018 and 2019 as well. Right, right, right. Um, let's uh, talk a bit about the IMF, who's been mm-hmm. obviously been a big player and, and trying to get the economy on, on track. Uh, what is the current status of the IMF program, and uh, why is that program so important? Right, and, and the program is, is absolutely critical for, for reasons I'll, I'll, I'll talk about here. Uh, it did serve uh, an absolutely vital purpose over the last couple of years uh, and, and did what the IMF is meant to do. It came in and provided immediate funding to the economy to restabilize things, uh, keep banks afloat at the very minimum. Um, and, and, and so that's been absolutely critical to helping the economy sort of stave off even a worse situation. Um, the, the IMF has only given partial funding thus far, about a third of the uh, planned uh, $17 billion uh, that, that are promised in the program, assuming Ukraine continues to um, continue keep, keep up with the reforms that they that the IMF is demanding, and Ukraine for for what it's worth has actually done a decent job in uh, implementing a lot of these major reforms. Unfortunately, a lot of these reforms are not felt by the population, by the average uh, Ukrainian living in Kiev on the ground necessarily. But uh, at a macro level, they they've seen a lot of stabilization. So the program has generally been successful uh, at sort of this macro level. Um, that said, for it will be critical to keep getting future funding. In particular, uh, Ukraine, um, after re- having restructured its debt in 2015, has major uh, funding obligations, uh, sorry, repayment obligations in 2019 and 2020 to the tune of roughly $6 billion for each year. Uh, they were able to enjoy sort of a delay in those payments from this restructuring deal, uh, but that makes it that much more uh, critical that they continue to comply with IMF demands and receive future IMF tranches so that they can continue making those external payments in future years as those payments rise. Um, in particular, the, the critical um, 
conditions that uh, investors should be paying attention to and, and what the IMF is keeping its eye on are four conditions that the IMF has made quite clear are critical for future tranches. Okay, um, Those are land reform, pension reform, uh, further fight in the, in, against corruption, uh, which would likely uh, involve creating uh, an anti-corruption court specifically, um, and uh, more privatization. So they haven't really started the privatization at all, but the IMF wants to see progress on all four, uh, in all four areas to get further tranches. Uh, just as a quick anecdote from my time there, from speaking with several journalists and economists uh, who you know, have some insights into the IMF and have contacts with the IMF, uh, it seems that the IMF is, is being a little bit more lax on some of those conditions at the moment um, in order to maybe help provide uh, you know, a future tranche maybe a partial tranche uh, by the end of this year to help Ukraine you know, financially sort of get back up on its feet. So uh, one of the things you've mentioned uh, previously is that uh, the IMF is softening conditions in the program. Why is that something, why are they willing to compromise on this when they have so much power over the Ukrainian government right now? Right, and, and it's, a, it's a good question, and this is something that uh, myself included and a lot of other analysts were wondering how the IMF would respond, because mm-hmm. fundamentally they don't try to get too political, yeah. of course, right? right. Um, and and f- the reason they are in the particular case with Ukraine, uh, they are, it seems, getting a, a bit political, because mm-hmm. the IMF recognizes, takes into consideration realistically, the domestic political situation. In short, the current Poroshenko government, the president of the country, and then Prime Minister Groisman uh, have shown clear willingness to cooperate with the IMF program. The IMF clearly also understands that since they have a good player and a good partner thus far, there has been reform progress to continue to try to work with these players because the alternative, these rising populists, as I had mentioned, mm-hmm. in particular, for example, the former uh, Prime Minister uh, Timoshenko, um, has started to gain popularity, and there's the very, very realistic concern that she could win the presidential elections in 2019 uh, based upon her rising popularity, and then that would uh, increase the potential for a reversal of Mm. a lot of these reforms and a lot of the progress that we've seen over the last few years. So the IMF is is very uh, attuned to that. Poroshenko, it seems clear, has has stressed that to the IMF as well, (laughs) uh, Groisman as well, and so it, it appears that maybe they're softening some of these conditions to avoid an even worse political outcome. Right, right, right. So moving away a bit from the macro, um, what is the current sentiment amongst our clients in terms of their thinking about Ukraine and how their local Ukraine businesses are doing? Mm-hmm. Right, and, and that's uh, something that's quite interesting from you know, being in contact with uh, you know, the GMs in the country consistently uh, since the, over the last three years, right? Uh, you hear a different message from the GMs on the ground, the, you know, the country managers, the distributors, the distributor partners, uh, on the ground, which overall, in a phrase, I, I would say is, is optimism uh, on the ground compared to the regional leaders. So the head of Europe that is managing the Ukraine uh, business or, or the corporate headquarters in New York or London or Paris, uh, where there's, they still deal with somewhat of an image problem. On the ground, though, talking to the country managers, you know, the teams based in the Kiev office, uh, the data even supports their optimism. In, in the first half of the year, almost all of the clients that I spoke with saw very strong sales growth, 
uh, in many cases exceeding their targets uh, mm -hmm. as well. They're, they're quite optimistic for the second half of the year as well and, and continued strong targets, uh, even to the point where they're, they're a little bit concerned about tempering expectations now <laughs> from, from headquarters uh, who might get even more ambitious than for, for 2018. But, uh, but generally speaking, this, this optimism is well-founded. There, there is rising optimism in, in the country. Uh, the recession is really is over clearly mm -hmm. uh, they're they're coming out of it they're 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 through the worst real wages are rising fast hiring is increasing the the Krivna has been very stable now for about the last year and a half um, and then importantly the a lot of firms have been strongly encouraged by the recent uh, EU Ukraine trade deal mm. which is really uh, sort of helping Ukraine reorient and and move its sh supply chains from its former linkages to Russia in the east uh, over towards towards the West and into the EU and the, and the the massive market that the EU offers. So, um, so there's a lot of very undermining strong, uh, or sorry, underlying strong positives this year and and for the future going forward that that supports uh, a lot of that optimism. Mm. Would you say that the multinational firms have been able to become competitive again? Because after the devaluation of the Grivna, with the price increases that many of them had mm. to put in, it, it really sort of had a hint on market share in some cases and uh, I'm assuming that some of the local players whose manufacturing costs would be lower now could be taking advantage of a price advantage. Um, are you seeing multinationals being able to regain their competitiveness as purchasing power starts to recover? Mm -hmm. uh, right, so we're sort of in a middle ground here. That was absolutely the case where we, you saw you mm -hmm. know, the small local competitors or regional competitors uh, doing particularly well in the last couple of years based primarily on, on price competitiveness. Right. Uh, so absolutely, and we do seem to be coming out of that a bit. We are seeing consumer confidence rising, mm -hmm. uh, sort of expectations of future, um, you know, financial situations improving in the country, and then fundamentally the fact that Ukrainian consumers under understand that Western products that multinationals are offering are generally speaking of better quality, and if not even necessarily better quality, the the brand image is mm -hmm. is very enticing and appealing. So mm -hmm. they they still want to. Um, Sort of aspire and and mm -hmm. and buy those those Western goods. So um, so we, we still have have seen you know recovering demand for a, a lot of those those goods and preference for for those Western imports as uh, opposed to Russian ones. As a, and in particular compared to Russian ones. Right. Um, and and not and in a very important uh, point that that I learned on the, on the ground there was uh, not necessarily even specifically Russian brands, but even. Uh, Western goods that are produced in Russia and that had mm -hmm. historically been manufactured in Russia and then imported into, into Ukraine, mm -hmm. uh, Ukrainians are very sensitive to just that simple fact. And, and now they're putting on products, say even American products that are produced in Russia, the country of origin and mm -hmm. where they're produced. And um, top down, the government is encouraging that Ukrainians not purchase these goods and bottom up. Uh, Ukrainians are very, very sensitive and uh, very attentive to the fact that these goods are produced in Russia, and they don't want to buy it because, in again, with the war sort of lingering in the common, you know, in the popular consciousness uh, in the country, they don't want to feel like they're supporting the war effort against mm -hmm. their own Ukrainian sons and daughters who are who mm -hmm. are fighting uh, mm -hmm. uh, against Russia in the east. So, um, so there we we have seen consumer boycotts and and. I, the companies I, I've been speaking with uh, have become sensitive to this, and they're uh, actually reorienting some of their supply chains mm. and, and manufacturing uh, to to avoid mm. that, that issue. 
are any companies actually localizing manufacturing in Ukraine? Because it sounds like with this change in consumer preferences, the ability to export from Ukraine potentially to, to the EU and the cost competitiveness that you get from the Grivna devaluation, it starts to sort of become an interesting question about whether producing in Ukraine for the domestic market and for exports might be an interesting play. Is anybody considering that, that you've spoken with, or what is the sentiment around that question? Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The, theoretically, the drivers are all there, mm-hmm. and, and, and this came up with all the clients that I spoke with. Some of them aren't in a position, of course, to necessarily be localizing, but the ones that that are and have considered that, and and, and to add to the, the list of the positive drivers for that, the the, the cheap assets that are available yeah, across the country, also, of course, yeah. um, this is clearly an opportunity that they're seeing mm-hmm. on the ground. But again, this gets back to some of the image problem. Mm-hmm. Um, getting further investment, much less investment necessary for localization from corporate, from you know your corporate head of strategy in New York or in London, it's difficult because of the image problem. Right. 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 And can, can we actually uh, break down that image problem a little mm-hmm. bit and talk about uh, what are the main factors that are causing cautiousness within corporate headquarters about Ukraine? And I imagine related to that also, what is happening with the war? And is that concern over this um, frozen or not so frozen conflict, is that maybe justified? And maybe actually the timing is not right. And and that is the point. It, it is relatively justified. And even mm-hmm. our, our clients on the ground, the GMs there, they do recognize that they there is an image problem, but there, there are some fundamentals which... Mm-hmm make that hesitance uh, legitimate and mm-hmm. incredible. So, um, yes, the war, that that is the fundamental issue. The corporate head is seeing headlines out of Ukraine if, when it comes about in Financial Times or Wall Street Journal, and usually with Ukraine to be something relatively negative and related to the war, uh, or, or at least sort of Russia's relationship to Ukraine. Um, but also corruption is still extremely high and, and ubiquitous and not quite enough has been done uh, in, in terms of corruption, rule of law, property rights, uh, our, our companies' confidence that they can get you know, a, a legitimate, just decision in, in, in the courts in Ukraine. So that those continue to be the, the, the drivers sort of working against further investment mm. and, and localization. Plus, as I mentioned, you have sort of this uh, double political and economic uh, problem in 2019 and 2020 in mm-hmm. terms of both elections as well as high debt payments that are required. Uh, both of those sort of work against, uh, you know, the, that making that case for, for the further investment and, and make headquarters still continually uh, hesitant. Right, right, right. So let's actually touch on some of the concerns that the local teams are um, really dealing with. And I think you mentioned a few of them, right, um, mm-hmm. in terms of the quality of governance. But is there anything else that is happening in the business environment or in the macro environment that is uh, weighing on confidence from, from multinational firms or making their life more difficult? Mm-hmm. Well, in particular, the war, as I mentioned, weighs on sentiment. So, so that's there, of course. Um, corruption, uh, of course, is, is an issue, as I mentioned. Uh, more sort of uh, economically and logistically in, in the market, Exchange rate volatility continues to be an issue. Uh, the massive devaluation compared to where the Krivna was prior to the Maidan and, and the war in the Donbass to where it is today uh, still, of course, lingers in our, our clients' minds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they wonder, where is the Krivna going? 
it's become increasingly clear it's stable, but that still is, is a question mark for a lot of our and, firms. And is that, what, what are you forecasting in terms of? Uh, general stability with minimal depreciation going forward. So in the next several years, only see uh, maybe roughly 5% in total depreciation mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. its current rate, 5 right. to 10% depreciation. Um, which, of course, would affect repatriation of profits, but fundamentally shouldn't affect in terms of consumer demand uh, or business demand in the country, shouldn't uh, have an overwhelming effect on inflation levels mm-hmm, within mm-hmm, the country. Mm-hmm. Um, the maybe uh, most important uh, sort of tactical issue within the country, again, related to the derivative devaluation, the high interest rates, the, the economic uh, sort of uh, issues that have arisen over the last three to four years, uh, these have... S- really changed the retailer, uh, pharma sector, um, pharma chains, and, and distributor uh, sectors in, in, in terms of causing much stronger uh, consolidation, which we'll see intensify for distributors, for retailers, et cetera, going forward for the next several years. Um, this has just changed the dynamics. So this, because of this consolidation, it's given the bigger players, whether you're a distributor or you're a pharma chain or you're one of the, the biggest retailers in the country, it gives them a lot more market share and a lot more power in their relationships with, uh, with our clients. And so as a result, you, you match sort of weak demand in the country mm-hmm. or, or I mean, recovering demand, but still relatively weak and mild with price pressure, more, more negotiating power from retailers and distributors that puts even more press price pressure on, mm-hmm. on our clients and their margins. Uh, so it's it's another it's an operational issue that is uh, really front and center and, and something that all the all of our clients are, are trying to manage in certain ways mm-hmm. and will continue to be an issue for the foreseeable future. Mm. So before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you one last question, and, and this is actually around the geography of demand in Ukraine. Um, are you seeing companies? Uh, focusing maybe more on specific regions or uh, bigger cities, smaller cities? How are they thinking about uh, the geographic structure of their operations and their sales? Right. And and there has been a difference, particularly in 2016. Uh, a lot of our uh, firms were focusing, of course, on Kiev, first and foremost, mm-hmm. um, which I should note from, from, you know, having been there and, uh, you know, Kiev, you, you would not necessarily think, is in the middle uh, of a country at war when you walk down the street on a Tuesday night at 10 p.m. and restaurants and cafes are, are all full, right? Um, so it, it, it changes sort of the, the image uh, of the country uh, that a lot of times corporates, the headquarters doesn't see on the ground. Um, but when you go sort of, you know, what our clients have been looking at, Lviv, of course, other uh, Odessa, Kiev, naturally, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, uh, that those had the, the the large cities, particularly in the center and the west, had been the focus, and, and the, that was the su- successful strategy last year. Now we're starting to see a little bit more even growth across the country, mm-hmm. so we're seeing clients even moving, uh, focusing more, for example, on the south, uh, just south of Kiev, mm-hmm. and finding some more opportunities there. Mm-hmm. Um, also, another interesting dynamic that's related to the retailer consolidation, as I had mentioned is that uh, because of that price pressure that uh, a lot of our clients are feeling and, and that pressure on their margins, they're actually looking at uh, regions that are interestingly um, seeing weak demand, maybe, ha- maybe have suffered more than other areas uh, over the last three years, um, but starting to recover slowly, but importantly, uh, are still served by more traditional uh, sales channels. So clients then 
for logistical reason, it's reasons as opposed to demand reasons necessarily, are actually finding better margins and better uh, gains and profits going to areas, say, 100 miles west of Kiev or some mid-sized cities uh, that aren't served by modern retail as much, and so they can avoid some of the price pressure through modern retail and instead can, uh, can, can sort of win by selling through more traditional channels where they, they enjoy better margins. Right, right. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, very interesting discussion and hopefully enlightening in terms of both the risks and opportunities of um, operating and investing in Ukraine. Um, as a reminder, um, those of you who are FSG clients can speak with Mark or any other analyst by simply reaching out uh, via your client relationship director. Um, and of course, all of our research on Ukraine, as well as our forecasts for the exchange rate, GDP growth, consumer spending, etc., are available on our portal at portal.frontierstrategygroup.com. This concludes our podcast. Until next time, we wish you great outperformance in your emerging markets.